Kelly Rubley is not the first person we've ever interviewed on this show who earned a master's degree but decided to train horses instead. She is, however, the only one who gave up an academic career to hunt foxes. Now she has a formidable Preakness contender always mining. We'll talk with Kelly Rubley. Plus, it's time for a refresher on how stewards interpret the whole DQ rule. I'm guessing you know why. And we're going to do something we've never done before on this show. We're going to go through some Twitter chatter that spewed out after the you-know-what and what it means for the sport going forward. Stay in your lane, or you'll be disqualified from listening to this show. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. And they roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch, it's a hit-bombing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket out. Those were the opening lines of the legendary 1970s TV show Welcome Back, Cotter, where the main character, played by Gabe Kaplan, returns to his New York City high school to become a teacher. Our next guest has done the reverse. Kelly Rubley grew up loving horses in upstate New York, grew up to become a middle school science teacher, and then left that stable career to return to the stables. On TV, Mr. Cotter dealt with a group of teenage guys who seemed comically incapable of maturing into adults. Kelly Rubley, now a thoroughbred trainer, has an equine version of a teenager, as three-year-olds in the spring basically are, but this guy has done some growing up in the last few months. Always Mining will have to make a three-wide bid, and he's willing to do it. Always Mining up to try for gold as Bozzini's off the scene now in third position. Less than three furlongs to go. And Always Mining now in front from try for gold, turning for home in the Federico Tessio Stakes. Always Mining set down and opens up a four-length lead on try for gold. Always Mining with a six, now a seven-length lead. Always Mining... Wrapping home past the Laurel Line and headed to the Preakness. Always Mining comes into the Preakness on a six-race winning streak, albeit in races not quite as rigorous as those on the Kentucky Derby Trail. Nonetheless, the three-year-old gelding has answered the rhetorical question about dreams that you'd hear on Welcome Back, Cotter. Who'd have thought they'd lead you back here where we need you? And by back here, we mean to Maryland, where Kelly Rubley is based at Fair Hill, with a chance to claim one of the American Spring Classics. And we welcome trainer Kelly Rubley here to In the Gate. This horse has made 12 starts already. Maximum Security, maybe you've heard of him, has made five, including that whole Kentucky Derby thing. The last nine of always mining starts have come at Laurel, and the last six of those have been wins, all enlisted or overnight stakes. What's been your philosophy on how to bring him along? Well, he... He was purchased by my current owners after his maiden win. So he's only been with me since he ran on the grass in Maryland last summer. So, you know, we've kind of just strategically followed the, the path of the Maryland route to get to where we're at today. What made the light bulb turn on for him last October when this winning streak started? 
Boy, I wish I could answer that. Um, <laughs> he's always been a very nice horse. I mean, and he won his maiden nicely. I think the goal was always to stretch him out, and there were very limited races for two-year-olds um, when we ran him on the grass. So after that, we opted to just sit tight and, and wait till they had a, a route race for us, and obviously he relished the mile. Now, you grew up in central New York, which is not exactly horse country. I know I went to Syracuse. What made you even want to get involved with horses up in that perpetually gray, bleak part of the world? I don't know. I guess it was something, ever since I could walk or talk, all I ever wanted to do was be around horses. So it was just naturally in me. Uh, but yes, it was a little limited. I started riding at a, a quarter horse barn, actually, and started competing on the quarter horse circuit, doing jumpers and hunters. And from there, bought an event horse and started shipping down to the Maryland, Pennsylvania area. And that's kind of how I ended up in the area of Fair Hill. But you listened to your parents. You earned two master's degrees, two master's degrees, and became a middle school science teacher. Now, first of all, could there possibly be a more draining job in the world than being a middle school teacher? I actually really enjoyed that age. The students are, you know, they're just starting to develop themselves, much like a young horse. (laughs) So I thought they were a lot of fun. But, yes, it's exhausting, and it wasn't necessarily something I could see myself doing in the future, which is why I went back and got my second master's for administration and tried that for three years and then decided, you know what, horses are where I'm meant to be. Well, yeah, I mean, what happens? You were wearing a suit as an administrator and everything, and did you just have an epiphany, or was it a gradual thing? It was gradual. You know, even when I was teaching, I went into the administration because of the fact that I'd already devoted so much of my time and my education toward the education world, so what could I do to move up the ladder in that respect? So I tried the administrative route and decided that it just wasn't for me. It allowed more flexible hours than my current job, but it just wasn't something I had a passion for. Kelly Rubley, trainer of Preakness Contender, always mining, joining us here on In the Gate. Now, before you get to Fair Hill, which you mentioned, you leave teaching school for fox hunting in Pennsylvania? Is that a thing? That was just a job to kind of regroup and see what I was going to do with my life. But yes, I was managing a farm, and we... Fox hunted. We didn't really have an opportunity in where I grew up. I never fox hunted in my life. So it was a unique experience and something that I greatly enjoyed. But it also got me my start with Barkley Tag here at Fair Hill. How? I started galloping for him here. He had a string at Fair Hill. And um, I started galloping for him and then eventually moved up to become his assistant well, wait, how do you go from fox hunting in Pennsylvania to Fair Hill and being an exercise rider? Well, fox I mean, that job was just pretty much to, to move me to this area to figure out what I was going to do. And that's when I met Barkley and became an exercise rider for him with the goal that I would eventually become an assistant and kind of learn the horse racing world from the ground up. What did your parents say about what you'd chosen to do with those two master's degrees? <laughs> They were not thrilled. They still think I'm a little nuts in the fact that, you know, I work seven days a week and I haven't had a day off in many years. But as we've had a little bit of success, they're starting to kind of see what my my goal was all along. And, they're, you know, they're coming around. But um, still, it wasn't ideal in their eyes at the time. Well, in light of that, how nervous were you when you finally decided to go out on your own? 
say I was nervous. You know, it was a goal, and I like I'm somewhat of a driven person, and so I set a goal, and I knew when I became an assistant that the idea was to learn as much as I could to have an eventual string of my own, and you know, it it came around gradually, and I worked my way into it, and so it was just a natural flow, really. I'm guessing you're hoping that the success of Always Mining will lead to more business. How big a stable do you have, and how big would you like it to be? I have about 40 horses in training right now. Um, we've had more in the past. I'm a very hands-on person. I check every horse's legs every morning. Um, so I don't know how big we'd like it to go. We'd like to continue to improve the stable and have a nice allowance-level stable. So, you know, it just depends. And I don't know that, that there's a magic number to stop at. It's just when I feel like I can't stay on top of everything, then I'm going to have to take a minute and relook at it. It is. Always mining, still in control. Leads almost two lengths from Jovia. Six furlongs a minute, 12. Three sixteenths left to go. Looks like the distance is no problem at all for always mining. Always mining, kept to task, opening up a half dozen on Jovia second and Tybalt third. Always Mining wants to run all day. Always Mining to win it by 6 or 7. We've talked on this show recently about the stickiness of the future of the Preakness, but considering that Always Mining has won six in a row at Laurel Racecourse and made nine of his 12 career starts there, I'm guessing you personally wouldn't be too opposed to running the Preakness there this year. I wouldn't mind if they moved it this year. That would be perfect. That's going to happen. I mean, how concerned are you that he can bring his racetrack with him, even though it's still in the state of Maryland? Actually, I think the Pimlico course is going to set him up nicely. It's got that nice long stretch, and he just has a very large galloping stride, so I, I, I don't see this, the track change to be a problem. We're going to have to do it eventually. And I'm guessing you don't mind seeing that just about all of the top derby contenders are going elsewhere. No, that plays well for us, Absolutely. Well, we certainly wish you the best of luck here, Kelly Rubley. Thank you so much for sharing a few minutes with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're going to take our first break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, it's time to revisit that whole DQ rule and how it's interpreted. I'm guessing you know why. We need a refresher, so don't go away. Welcome back to In the Gate. One of the issues that came out of that controversial finish in the Kentucky Derby is a re-examination of an issue we've already discussed a couple of years ago here on In the Gate, the two different interpretations of the rule regarding potentially disqualifying a horse for interference in a race. Category 1 says that if, in the track steward's eyes, the offending horse would have finished ahead of the horses who were offended, regardless of the bumping, then the result would be allowed to stand. That interpretation is followed by most of the world. Here in North America, though, the United States and Canada, stewards generally follow Category 2, which says that if any interference affects the outcome of a race in any way, then the offending horse must be disqualified. That was the interpretation that the stewards at Churchill Downs followed in removing maximum security as the winner of the Kentucky Derby. Most of the mainstream media who covered the race don't understand any of this. But even if you do, there are still a number of points that need to be clarified in the wake of this decision. So to do that, we welcome back to the show Kathy O'Meara of the Jockey Club, who among other things coordinates the Racing Officials Accreditation Program, ROPE, since 2010. First of all, Ms. O'Meara, 
What is your impression of how the stewards at Churchill Downs handled the situation? I think they're they're tasked with a pretty big job, obviously on any race day, but certainly on the on the big race days. And you know we're looking for you know the stewards to act in a in a routine and consistent manner. And so you know I think certainly you know they have to go through all their training and everything that they have on those big race days. And they you know you watch the race, you then have to go back watch your replays, you then, you know, determine any sort of inquiries, objections, et cetera, that have to be handled, and you deal with those accordingly. You deliberate and you make your decision, and I think they certainly did that. You know, certainly it was a big big race day, and, and you know, it did take a little longer, um, but at the same time, it certainly did everything within their policies and procedures that, that needed to be done. I don't want to spend too much time on the granular issues of that particular race, but I do want to ask about the time factor, 22-minute inquiry. What did you make of that? Um, Well, you want to make sure that the stewards are able to have as much time as they need to make those decisions. So I'm not going to say one shorter or longer time is better. If they need the time to make the decision, that's the time they need. All right. Here's my bigger question that people were asking me in the days after, because I was explaining the whole Category 1 versus Category 2 thing. Now, the IFHA, the International Federation of Horse Racing Authorities, is the overarching body that sets the rules for stewards in each country to follow. Why, in the first place, are there two different interpretations of the rule on interference? Right. So, um, so to back up a little bit, so the the IFHA and and its development of, of these rules, they are model rules, and and each uh, international racing jurisdiction is a signatory to those rules if if they follow that model or not. It's not like a FEI or something where they place the rules and all jurisdictions are mandated to follow that regime. And within that, there's a, a separate committee, and that's the one I sit on, which is called the International Harmonization of Race Day Rules Committee, and um, we are looking specifically at the rules of the race and on race day. So it wasn't actually until that the formation of that committee to when the, I guess, the nomenclature of category one and two was pretty much, I guess, derived because there, we noticed that there was a difference of, of philosophy and styles of adjudicating races. And so there has been a, an international push to move toward consistency in those interference rules. The actual committee passed the rule, and actually it, was, it wasn't it was until 2017 when the, the official rule came into place in the IFHA agreement. And so there's been some, you know, over the years, different jurisdictions have come on to that, that way of thinking. And now at this point in time, North America is, is really the only one who has the Category 2 philosophy. But I'm not sure how much more detail I can. I have lots of different examples of kind of how in different countries they made this the switch and why and, and those sort of things, too. Well, not only country to country, but last week we had Tim Tullock, who's a racing analyst in Maryland, on the show. And he said that the interpretation of the rule differs from state to state, much less country to country. And what's your view of that? Right. So if we look just domestically here in the United States, we do we are considered a Category 2 philosophy, which in general terms we're talking about if fouls alter the finish of the race. And I think the key to remember, obviously, is each state is going to have a different rule, but the philosophy is still similar. But it is up to the stewards to adjudicate the rule that's in their jurisdiction. So the wording may be slightly different, but most of them will indicate somewhere that it's in the opinion or in the judgment of the stewards to determine first if a foul occurred. Um, And then once you determine if a foul occurred, you're now looking at the second part of that is 
okay, in their opinion, did it alter the finish or did it cost the placing? Was it, some of the rules say, was it reasonably expected that a horse should finish in a certain place? So there's a different ways that it's worded, but essentially the stewards have the judgment to decide if the foul did occur and then the judgment to determine what to do with that foul. So that's where you, you have folks that may say, okay, well, you know, either we're not consistent or, you know, there's a lot of judgment in there. And there is, there's a lot of judgment and a lot of discretion and the stewards have to be consistent within the rule in their particular jurisdiction and over time in that jurisdiction. Cause obviously you want the same, same board adjudicating over, you know, the same race meets for a period of time. Kathy O'Meara of the Jockey Club joins us here on In the Gate. She's in charge of the Racing Officials Accreditation Program, and two years ago she led a discussion on the interference question at the annual Jockey Club Roundtable in Saratoga, after which she spoke about that same topic here on this show. The fact that the derby situation happened at the top of the stretch with just a quarter mile to go, I'm thinking of the 2014 Breeders' Cup Classic. Field sent on their way to the roar of the crowd and Bayern broke inwards there and Shared Belief had a rough beginning. Oh, and Shared Belief just had a take back between horses again early on. Top of the lane now in the big one and Bayern goes for home. Toast of New York, California Chrome on the grandstand side. Bayern, Toast of New York, California Chrome. Bayern, Toast of New York, Bayern has won it. Bayern got there by a head under Martin Garcia over Toast of New York. California Chrome ran his heart out, but had to settle for a close third. That incident happened right out of the gate, with still the entire mile and a quarter race to be run. How much does that matter when in the race the foul happens? You know, again, I'm going to throw back to the the steward's discretion on there, but that is something that they are going to look at their consistency over their race meet. You want every race to be adjudicated in the same manner. So, you know, you set a precedent at the at the beginning of the race meet. You have your meetings with your jockeys and you express, you know, these are the areas that we need to be prepared for, watch out for, very similar to what you saw Miss Borden do on the telecast that they're watching. You go down with the jockeys, you talk to them. These are our expectations. So once those expectations are set and, you know, the meet has begun and you have your your process of which you go through, you know, that's where you don't want to deviate. So I believe at the time the the California rule actually had stated that if it was in a part of the race, that would affect the outcome. So you could argue the beginning may or may not have been in a part that could have affected the outcome. However, not many states have that clause. So you're really looking at overall, do you think the horse uh, was impeded in that in a fashion that would have altered the finish? Um, and I think that's kind of the biggest difference when you're looking at category one and two, because category one, you're really looking at the horses involved in the incident and who would have potentially benefited from that incident. If there's no benefit gained and the horse goes on to win, then you say, okay, there is no change. So it's a, it's a little bit more consistent manner in terms of, of adjudication. But, you know, you, you also on the Category 2 side, you're looking at all parties aggrieved and also the aggressor. So just a little bit different in the tweaks of, of how you're looking at that race. Now, you referred to Ms. Borden, Barbara Borden, the chief state steward in Kentucky, and it's not a surprise that she didn't take questions from reporters after the race. She made a statement in the press room after the race but took no questions. Now, I know that officials in stick-and-ball sports rarely, if ever, speak with the media. The NBA puts out its last two minutes report after each game, so you can see whether late-game calls were deemed to have been made correctly or not, but that's about it. Now, I've said over and over in the days following the race that, 
While Barbara Borden certainly was under no obligation to field questions, that doing so would have added a layer of transparency that this sport, maybe more so than others, I think, clearly needs. What do you think about that? Um, certainly, I, I would say that, you know, obviously, I think, as you mentioned there, that layer of transparency, I think, is vital. You know, obviously, we don't know all the circumstances and if they are not allowed to, to speak. And obviously, we're very pleased that there was a statement made after the races. So, you know, when possible, you know, we encourage large jurisdictions to have these sort of press conferences set up um, and available afterwards. And, you know, if all parties involved feel that the, you know, questions can be asked, I think that that's, that's the way to go. It certainly helps in, in folks understanding, if, even if it's not the officials themselves, but having, you know, a spokesperson there that could field any questions, I think is, is certainly helpful. Certain states will have, you know, appeal rights and not. So, you know, that you have to be a little bit careful on, in those situations. And so I think all those have to be taken into consideration when developing a media plan for, for your, your track and, and for your uh, big race days. I think it was a couple of years ago, at Royal Ascot in England, there was a claim of interference in a race, and the host broadcaster in England, ITV, had cameras and microphones in the stewards' room, so you could hear the Q&A where the jockeys were asked for their sides of the story. Now, I imagine that if such a thing were to happen here in the United States, each state regulatory body would probably have to allow it. But nonetheless, what would be the jockey club's position on such a thing? Well, I don't have a position directly from, from the jockey club on that, I can, but I can state, you know, that that's certainly how most international jurisdictions handle them. One of the things we do a little bit differently here in the States is that the ruling um, or the hearing for the jockeys themselves happens on race day. So here in the States, those are going to be separate. They're going to be talking to the jockeys and having that informal hearing regarding the running of the race, specifically the horse's actions and what action they should take on the placings. Anything that has to deal with the jockey themselves in terms of, of any uh, penalties that might be assessed, we're going to do that the next business day or you know whenever the, the track may be open again. That's when they're going to do the reviews and those sort of things. So there are two separate hearings where in most international jurisdictions are going to have the, the one hearing, but the race has already been made official for most cases in terms of the placings and you're just trying to deal with at that point what actions you may take on the jockey. Certainly, I think that it would be very interesting to have that same sort of thing happen here in the States. Uh, I don't know if there's a position one way or the other. It's certainly something we discuss about frequently and what is within the, the legal realm from state to state. Unfortunately, you'd have to, you would have to do that state to state. Well, on some level, it is still somewhat stupefying that an issue that seems so routine to people who watch racing all the time, a disqualification for a foul, became such a point of contention with the general public. But on the other hand, it also gives us a chance to kind of reexamine where everybody stands on this and how it should work going forward and transparency and other related issues. So thank you so much, Ms. Amira, for coming on and shedding some more light on this. I can't believe we're still talking about this. <laughs> All right. I do appreciate it. And thank you so much. Normally at this point in the show, we would end with a one minute commentary that I do in the form of a four stanza poem and say goodbye. But here we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to go through some of the Twitter vitriol that was put out in the wake of the Kentucky Derby and what it means in the big picture for how people view this sport. I think it's important that we pay attention to this, so please come back so we can do this together.
Welcome back here to Win the Gate. I try very hard on this show not to make it about me, not to really inject much of my own opinion beyond the little one-minute commentary I do at the end in the form of a four-stanza poem. But in the wake of the Kentucky Derby, and let me back up a second here, I am very grateful that around big race days, ESPN Radio's affiliates across the country, local affiliates, asked me to come on and banter for five or ten minutes about the big race, and oftentimes the host or hosts will ask one or two kind of big-picture questions about the sport, so it's more than just pretty horse running and big race. But certainly after the Kentucky Derby, a number of these affiliates wanted me to come on and try to clarify what happened and why and what it meant, and I'm grateful that they would ask me to do that. In preparing for those, which happened mainly on Monday, so, you know, 36 hours or so after the race, I went online and looked at what was going on on Twitter to try to get a, an idea of the pulse of the country of what people were thinking. And there was, as you would expect, a lot of outrage. It really shocked me a bit. I'm not, I hate to use the word shock, but I'm really going to use the word shock because to those people in racing, I think many of them, many of us, know that disqualifications happen every day. It just isn't a big deal. Horse commits a foul, is taken down. It's a standard practice, and I think clearly the right one in this case. There really was no other way the decision in the Kentucky Derby could have gone, based on the way the rule is interpreted here, as you heard Kathy O'Meara describe just a couple of minutes ago. But perception is reality, and what these people who don't cover racing perceive about what happened. And remember, these are people who watch racing one or two days a year, maybe just a handful more. They're the ones that really are the future of this sport, especially the young sports bettors. Now with sports wagering becoming legalized in this country and beginning to mature, I would imagine that racing people would love those sports gamblers who are hungry for data to come over to this sport, which is very data-driven in the way people bet, and and start pumping money into this industry. Well, let's take a look at what we saw online and try to make sense of all of this, especially from Twitter. I mean, no less an authority than the Washington Post on the Monday after the Derby wrote, The Kentucky Derby decision was a bad one. Country House never had a chance of winning. Which tells me clearly they don't understand the process. Jimmy Kimmel that night on his show said... Not since La La Land won Best Picture has there been a more dramatic presentation to the wrong winner. Wrong winner, he said. And that's the way people feel. Ivy Conrado wrote the day after the Derby on Sunday, Maximum security left his heart on the track, and if he wouldn't have made the move that got him DQ'd, he would have won by four lengths instead of one. Now this person understands a little bit more because... I think Ivy seemed, you could argue, accepting of the fact that that move did warrant a disqualification. But you had people like Bill Cunningham on WLW in Cincinnati, a clear channel station that reaches pretty far across the Midwest, saying, It is outrageous and sad that the best horse did not win the Kentucky Derby. I always thought that the horse first getting to the finish line wins. I am wrong. Three stewards overturned the race after review of the video. 
This is pure and simple socialism. Let the horses decide. Clearly, this is a man with influence and a man who doesn't get it, just doesn't get it, that you cannot, under any circumstances, legislate that what happened with maximum security is okay. You cannot legislate that. Because here's the thing, on one side of their mouths, people are going to say that safety matters most in this sport and the 23 deaths at Santa Anita and blah, blah, blah. But in the next breath, saying, let the horses decide. It's unfathomable how these people do not understand that those two things don't go together. In fact, Jay McQuillan, the day after the Derby, writes, NASCAR has bumping, hockey checking, football blocking, basketball picks, soccer bumping, etc. But wedge a horse between two others in a packed Kentucky Derby race while leading the race and your horse gets disqualified? Seriously? I'm sorry. Like I said, I don't normally like to inject a lot of my own opinion in here, but this is what is out there. This is what people have been writing after the Kentucky Derby. And it just boggles my mind how these people, in the next breath, will turn around and look at Santa Anita, for example, and I hate to pick on Santa Anita, but hey, it's happened, and say, the sport needs to improve its safety. You cannot put the two of these things together. You can't do it. The only thing that matters is the safety of the horses and the riders, and you cannot legislate that what happened to maximum security is okay, because the next person will come along on purpose, because Luis Saez did not do that purposely. The horse just got spooked. Saez did nothing wrong. But the next person will come along and say, hey, maximum security got away with it in the biggest race in the country. Why can't I get away with it? I'm going to try it next. And you cannot legislate that. Nick Vacaresa, the son of Carlo Vacaresa, noted trainer, Breeders' Cup winning trainer, says... If it's a $10,000 claim or a Gulfstream Park and Paco Lopez was on the seven, everyone would be agreeing. But since it's the Kentucky Derby, people seem that racing rules are all turned off. Well, he is getting to the heart of the matter. There cannot be one rule for the Kentucky Derby and one rule for everybody else, just so it's easier for the general public to understand the outcome and how we got there. That is ridiculous. Safety matters most. And... It sets the right example to the entire industry, not just to the casual fan, that you cannot legislate that this is okay. You can't legislate that this is okay. It can never be okay to allow that kind of move because the next person's going to try it on purpose. No questions asked. And now here's the one that really blew me away. Really just blew me away. The night of the Derby. In the USA Today, that very night of the race... An opinion from Dan Wolken. Maximum security was robbed at Kentucky Derby, yet another black eye in horse racing. Why is that a black eye? Are you kidding me? Are you absolutely kidding me? Like I said, I don't want to make this show about me. And it's not about me. But I don't like to inject my own opinion in here very much. We bring on experts. They are much more capable and positioned to do so than I could ever be. But when I see that, yet another black eye in horse racing because of that decision, I'm sorry, I have got to make this clear to the people in the industry 
and those who follow it closely that this is what is out there that this industry is trying to deal with. There is no black eye from the decision. For those who follow and understand what happened, it was the only decision to make. The black eye would have been had maximum security and war of will clipped heels and gone flying head over heels. That would have been a black mark and a black eye for the industry. The fact that there was a disqualification is not a black eye at all. But that is what people are seeing. That is what they are reading. And that is what they are believing. And it it just blows me away. But it is a reality that this industry has got to deal with. That this is how people are seeing it. And if they only watch racing once a year, they're going to come back next year to the Kentucky Derby and think that there's chicanery going on because there was a disqualification of the perceived winner. Somebody named K. Jimsik, K-G-I-E-M-Z-I-K, wrote the day of the Derby, Shame on the Kentucky Derby steward. Horse racing is unfortunately already a dying sport. Now you just killed it. Once again, perception is reality. This is what people are saying. Are they going to come back and watch the Derby next year? Are they ever going to watch again? Something these people have to deal with. Dennis Towell Jr. wrote The Night of the Derby. Not that I was a big horse racing fan, but changing the Kentucky Derby result for an impede charge is whack. Sure looked like a whole bunch of horse racers trying to share the same space in a small window. Maximum security led from start to finish. That's your winner. This is what people are thinking, and the industry has got to come to grips with how to deal with this. Unfortunately, this is a fractured industry. They do not have one big governing body think tank, so to speak, that can figure out how to change this. But more so than anything else I think that I've seen in the Kentucky Derby, this has the power to really turn people off if we're not careful. And like I said, I think this is something we needed to deal with in a little bit longer form than a minute and a half commentary at the end of the show. Having said that, There is one kind of funny tweet that I'll end with here. We have to end on a lighthearted note, don't we? Rob Reiner said this on the Monday after the Derby. What we learned today, when it comes to obstruction, horses are held to a higher standard than presidents. And I'll leave you with that. You can find us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us on the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time. 